0: This is the English Heritage Podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. Today, we're focusing our attention on features of English Heritage properties that many visitors might overlook, but always look through. We're talking about windows, of course. They come in all shapes, sizes, designs, and styles from across the centuries and all with their own stories. But these windows into history also need to be looked at and looked after for future generations. Joining us to discuss the history of the thousands of windows at English heritage sites, and to talk about a new appeal that has been launched to rescue many of them from the ravages of time, are our three guests for this episode.
0: Hello, my name is Nicola Duncan Finn, and I'm the senior estates manager.
2: I'm Stephen Brindle. I'm a senior properties historian.
3: Hello, my name is Christian Kaminski and I'm the properties curator for London. So
1: Nicola, you are the senior estates manager. Do you know exactly how many windows there are at English Heritage's historic properties? It's a big question, I know.
0: It is a big question. We've got 13,000 windows listed as architectural features across our 400 sites. But within that number, that will be counting. Some windows have more sections than one, so some windows are larger. So they, these are not scaled by size, but we estimate thirteen thousand.
1: How many centuries would these windows span?
0: They span around two thousand years of um, architectural evolution. One of the earliest will date uh, to the Roman Pharos, which is at Dover, which is a, a lighthouse where we we would have had a uh, brazier lit internally. So that wouldn't have had glass, but they span from that era up until the more modern ones.
1: Now, obviously, if we're going back about 2000 years, we're talking about pre-glass windows and obviously some of English Heritage's sites will be in ruins, so they won't have glass because the glass will have disappeared. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
0: Yes. Our ruins are very good examples of sites that once had glass but don't now due to the dissolution of the monasteries when a lot of the glass was taken out for religious reasons. Lots of glass was taken out at the time. But these windows still today constitute really important architectural features and the skeletal system of the windows. So if you can imagine something we call the tracery, which is sort of the it's the spine of the windows that still survives. And often that's really important and provides important views through into now looking out under the sky. But you can still read legibly the architectural character of the window as it might have been, if not the detail.
1: So moving on to a few more facts and figures. Do you know which English heritage property has the most windows?
0: Yes, we believe that the Osborne House estate, actually we've got 1,122 windows there. That's not solely within the one building because the, the large number is made up of um, all of the ancillary buildings, which will include the servants' areas, the lodges, the cricket pavilion and other areas. But mm. that's the one. That's certainly the one of the largest sites.
1: And that's Osborne House on the Isle of Wight, obviously, or I should say... That's Osborne on the Isle of Wight, although it is a house as well, which was um, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert's uh, property. I gather that Dover Castle's also got a fair few windows?
0: Yes, Dover Castle has got just over a thousand, so 1,096 windows. They actually spread across the various garrisons and gatehouses at the site. That's clearly a military site. So the nature of the windows is going to be different to the large, perhaps often uh, large windows at, at Osborne House, for example, that were used to look over the site and look over the estate. So the windows are different, but both have equally large numbers.
1: And speaking of military sites, are there any places where the windows are fewest in number?
0: Yes, we've got a very interesting site in York, the Cold War Bunker, and that actually has one window only. And that's an internal window. Uh, Clearly, we didn't want anybody looking in or looking out of that site. So it's going to actually be one singular window inside. So the windows weren't just for looking out. They're also sometimes for partition of internal spaces and to catch the eye and create views through a building.
1: So that one is literally obviously because it was due to protect against a nuclear attack. You're surrounded by concrete, and and that's it, really.
0: That's it. But you could, but you could sit in and see the colleagues in the neighbouring room. So at least there's connectivity in the space through the window.
1: Of course, a bit like a radio studio, in a way.
0: <laughs> Similar principle.
1: So that has an internal sash window. You've also got another site, I believe, with just a singular window.
0: Yes, that's the 14th century Steeton Hall. That's a gatehouse though, so that's slightly different. It's a singular window. If you imagine a gatehouse opening, there's just a little arched window above that where people could look who was coming down the lane.
1: And whereabouts is Streeton Hall?
0: That's near Leeds in Yorkshire, yeah.
1: Right. Well, let's bring in Stephen now into the conversation. Stephen, you have covered a lot of history regarding the development and design and engineering of windows over time. How would you broadly plot the development?
2: Well, Charles, in the Middle Ages, glazed windows until the 13th century were normally restricted to churches and secular buildings. However grand, the windows were unglazed and they had shutters. So they were normally kept quite small, even in castles, even in royal castles, and so at Orford Castle in Suffolk, which was built as a grand residence, there are window openings to the hall and to the chamber above it, and they're very well preserved, and they had window seats, they were meant as social places, places to sit and converse, and you can see where the shutters hung, but you can also see that there was originally no glass and there are glazing channels from when glass was put in in the 15th century relating to the spread of glazing in the later Middle Ages. But even for the king and great lords in the 12th and 13th centuries, they would not normally expect their windows to have glass in. You could open a window, open a shutter and have light, or you could close it against the draught and it would be dark, but not have both. And King Henry III was something of a trendsetter in this respect. He had set out orders whereby he, he wanted windows which had both glazing and shutters so he could have a view and he could be free of freedom from drafts. And this fashion began to spread in the higher ranks of society and at Stokesy Castle, which is a very wonderful site of ours, but in Shropshire, Lawrence of Ludlow, the great wool merchant who built it had a hall where quite probably there were tall windows to the hall where the upper parts were glazed from the outset and the lower parts would have had shutters which could be opened for draughts and that would have helped to vent the smoke from the central half. In a few places there's evidence that windows had symbolic significance So at Richmond Castle, the first floor room, the keep there, has three fine windows, which overlook the outer bailey and the town. And it may be that this was seen as a kind of balcony on which to make appearances for the Lord of Richmond, who was also the Count of Brittany, who was a great Lord. Now in the 13th century, glazed windows began to appear in the castles of the great, but they only spread very slowly in society. And really in the middle ages, glazed windows were normally reserved for churches with stained glass, and there they were pretty well universal. In the 12th and 13th centuries, church windows had single lights, but from the mid 13th century, the English began to build traceryed windows with those very distinctive stone divisions, which make patterns, which were associated with Gothic architecture. And one of our properties, the Westminster Abbey Chapter House, which was built about 1245, has probably the first really large traceried windows built in England, which were based on models in France at Rams and Damien Cathedral. So traceried windows became a great theme of English Gothic architecture. They were hugely expensive and the elaborate stonework and the vast areas of glass, both required immense amounts of skilled labour. But a church was meant to be a sacrifice of wealth and effort to God. And so it was seen quite differently to a home, even a very grand person's home.
1: Yes, I can imagine that. And you've brought in a bit of um, specific window vocabulary there with tracery. So for people who um, aren't double glazing salesmen, (laughs) how would you best explain how these all look and and what these uh, words refer to?
2: Tracery is the word applied to stone divisions within windows. If it's quite a simple window on a house and you just have stone uprights that divide a window into two or three or four sections, we call those mullions. If it's quite a grand Elizabethan house like Kirby Hall and the stone divisions form a sort of grid, we call the upright mullions and the horizontal ones a transoms. But when the stone divisions make a pattern with pointed arches and curving shapes, like you often see on churches, that we call tracery. So mullions and mullions and transoms are the stone divisions which you see in house windows, historic house windows. But when it's but in church windows, when the stone divisions make a more elaborate pattern with curving elements, the word tracery is specifically applied to that. So you wouldn't really say that most house windows have tracery because they don't.
1: No. And cames are also the more lattice like structure that you might see in maybe Elizabethan windows, is that right?
2: Cames are the actual glazing. In the Middle Ages, in fact, right up to the eighteenth century, glass could only be made in very small sheets. Glass was made is made in furnaces from ash and silica and various other ingredients, and at very high temperatures they fuse and they form a hot a liquid at temperature. And a skilled glassmaker could spin or blow a ball of glass, either to form something like a disc or to form something like a bubble in shape. Um, And the bubble can be cut open and flattened if you're skilled enough. But you could only get very small flat sheets of glass. And this continued to apply really until the 18th century. And so early glazing always had to cope with the fact that the glass itself came in very small sheets. And Mm -hmm. so in historic buildings, there was really one technique for managing that. And that was to set the glass in strips of lead, which are called came's, like the the word she came. So the, the glass, which is either in square or diamond shapes, is set in lead cames into small sheets, which might go up to about the maximum, they could be, it's about two feet wide. And the thing is that the lead is quite soft, so it needs supporting. And so what you'll see, if you look in a, at a stained glass window in a church, is that there are iron bars set into the stone uprights, into the tracery, and the lead canes are actually tied, physically tied to that to support them, because otherwise the the lead, because lead is quite soft, it doesn't have very much strength, it would buckle and deform and the glass would fall out. Mm. So there was a specific technology, and this lasted really from about the 10th century until 17th century, when it was superseded by large sheets of glass which could be set into wood and so there were really there were really limiting factors because of the properties of the glass you couldn't make very large areas with it because the lead cames are inherently quite soft and weak and that's one of the reasons that's the main reason why windows had to have these stone divisions.
1: Right. Oh, that's really interesting how the limiting factors, as you've mentioned, meant that the engineering had to be a certain way. So that explains why all these Elizabethan properties look the way they they do. And obviously, they've developed since then. The other thing you've mentioned in terms of technical language was um, lights. Now, modern people will think, what are you talking about? But uh, we're talking about windows still here, aren't we?
2: Yes, we are lights uh, the word in this sense is simply used to mean the number of major divisions there is in a window and you could use these either of the individual panes of glass. when you see that kind of window in historic building you would those would be termed leaded lights but it can also be used of the larger divisions. So if you see a historic building, like Kirby Hall, where the where the windows are divided by stone uprights, you could say that a window is three lights wide and four lights high. If it's one of four mm. windows there. Or if it has a window with three stone divisions in it, we'd say that was a four light window. As glass gradually became cheaper and society became more prosperous, glazing spread downwards to society in the 16th and 17th centuries. At the beginning of the 16th century, an ordinary farming household could certainly not have afforded glass in their windows. By the end of the 16th century, fine farmhouses and prosperous people in towns could quite often afford to have glass in their windows, which was a tremendous status symbol. It was a real, it really meant that you'd made it, that you were prosperous to be able to afford glazing. And this was a major aspect in what we call the great rebuilding, that is the upgrading, Of the common stock of housing in England from basically timber framed huts with no glass in their windows to brick and stone built houses and properly timber framed houses with glazed windows and fireplaces and various shapes of windows developed and for rich people because windows were a status symbol um, having things like bay windows really became a way of showing off architecturally, of demonstrating your wealth. And so at Kirby Hall in Northamptonshire, there are two spectacular semicircular bay windows which have views in through 180 degrees and are places where which afford a spectacular view over the garden. And they will become a focus of the great rooms which they adorned. Mm. And so in the late 16th and early 17th century, there's a great variety of window design. But in the 17th century, window design became simpler again, and it really converged on just um, a couple of shapes, on upright shapes. And towards the end of the century, a different glazing technology came into use, which I, I think my colleague Christian's going to talk about.
1: Yes, indeed. So let's bring in Christian into the conversation now. Stephen's explained that there was a bit of a revolution in window design, kind of in the Georgian period, Can you tell us a bit more about uh, this simplification of window design um, from this time?
3: Well, yes, with the introduction of the sash window, a feature often seen as quintessentially English and Georgian, actually appeared in England in the late 17th century, which is just before the Georgian period. However, as its popularity spread, it came to epitomise Georgian design, and indeed much of the Victorian and Edwardian period too but it underwent a great deal of subtle change and variation during this time. Sliding sash windows were a great technological advance on casement windows. First one and then later both sashes were hung on ropes with counterweights concealed within a sash box to the frame. This type of sash window was probably invented in Paris in the mid-17th century. They were likely brought to England by craftsmen in the suite of the dowager Queen Henrietta Maria Following the restoration, she returned to England from Paris in 1660. The earliest surviving sash window in England can be found at the Old Palace at Newmarket, built for Charles II by his architect, William Samwell, in the 1670s. However, this is an unusual hybrid in the evolution of the window. Here, the sliding sashes are only to the lower half of the crossbar windows, Mm. uh, which I think Stephen described earlier. Late 17th and early 18th century sash windows had thick glazing bars, which were numerous due to the necessarily large number of small glass panes, glass still being very expensive at this time. However, in the early 18th century, the price of glass fell and the six over six, as in panes, window became popular. The Great Mm. Fire of London in 1666 and an increasing concern over the prevention of the spread of fire led to a number of building acts in London, At first it was required for all windows in London to be set back four inches from the face of the wall and later from 1774 recessed behind the brickwork. These regulations only applied to London, although some cities followed with their own um, building acts. But what was done in London was seen as fashionable and spread to the rest of the country. It is important to say that at first only high status buildings had sash windows. More modest buildings, especially in the countryside, would have casement windows. Sometimes sash windows would be specified for principal floors and elevations, and casement windows to attics, basements and rear elevations.
1: This uh, other vocabulary issue about casement windows, uh, for people who don't know what they look like, can you just describe I think most people know what a Georgian sash window looks like, it obviously moves up and down vertically.
3: A casement window is a very simple window that opens outwards.
1: Okay. There's a lot of uh, vocab in in windows as people are probably appreciating right now. We've obviously covered a lot of the Georgian period there and, and you mentioned London and you're a properties curator for London. So what are the most common window styles at English Heritage Properties in the capital? Would they be mostly Georgian sash windows?
3: Well, far from common, but I think mention must be made of the remains of the stunning 14th century rose window to the ruins of Winchester Palace in Bermondsey. This window has just been conserved by skilled masons who replaced a small amount of decayed stone and coated the original stone with a protective lime wash. Otherwise, our London sites illustrate the history of the window that we have just outlined, but the sash window dominates. Sash windows can be seen at the early Georgian Marble Hill and Rangers House, mid-Georgian Kenwood, and the late Georgian Apsley House. Mm. However, you will also find steel crittal windows the 1930s part of Elton Palace, as well as a magnificent art deco concrete and glass dome.
1: And what's crittal windows? How would you describe those?
3: So crittal was the name of a company who famously made steel windows in the 1930s, and still do today, and the name has become synonymous with the sort of concept of the steel window, but there were other manufacturers.
1: Well, let's uh, bring back Nicola into our conversation. We did mention in in our introduction that English Heritage is starting this fundraising appeal to help repair the 13,000 windows at the properties in its care. What are some of the issues affecting these windows and why are these repairs needed now?
0: Throughout our estate, uh, window maintenance has been ongoing since the buildings came into the National Collection and, and long before that. So from when a building is first built, maintenance is always a necessary entity. It just always happens routinely. But over the years now, as as Christian and both Stephen have mentioned, some of the windows are approaching for the sash windows, for example, 300, 350 years old of lifting up and down and moving around. Mm. So these windows start to become a little bit tired. That's sort of what we're starting to see now. So the windows themselves, the function of the windows, starts to become a little bit stressed by use over long periods. But the stresses on our windows now are also magnified by changes in the environmental conditions we're seeing. And that's very much related to climate change. So I can talk through that a bit more if you'd like to.
1: Okay, yes. Well, before we get on to the climate change aspect, I suppose with some of these windows that do move, they're mostly the panes made from timber, from wood. And that must be an issue.
0: It is, yeah. So depending upon how frequently they've been painted, they will have been exposed to different moisture levels in a building. So something that's... If you you imagine paint as the protective material... And that's going to block out water or moisture going into the wood. So something that's well painted um, is very strong and very robust because it's going to it's going to have that level of protection. If some of the windows it might not be now it might have been during the war time when there was there was less maintenance being happening during the war christian will attest to this in london you know lots of our windows had less maintenance historically and because of this there might have been a slightly vulnerable period in the windows maybe 100 years ago nearly nearly 100 years ago and that now is starting to have an impact because where the windows are becoming a bit more stressed by the weather we're starting to notice that they need maintenance on a more regular basis than they might have historically
1: Right, well, that makes sense. If you don't look after something, then it will start to decline. What about this issue then around climate change?
0: What we're starting to notice now is we're getting longer periods of drought, as you will. Um, we know drier summers, we've all seen our grass drying off in the summer, but well, that same drying effect has an impact upon our wood because wood, as I said, if you imagine it's it's not an innate material, it will expand and as it gets water in it or moisture, things move, wood will naturally move. So when we start to get ex- extended dry periods, particularly a south facing window or a south terrace like we have at Kenwood House in London the windows start to get very much affected by the heat, and actually that can lead in some instances to blistering or cracking over over maybe five or ten years, but this can start to happen. And once you have a little bit that's damaged, water can get in and seep in very quickly, and then the rate of decay increases rapidly.
1: Right. And what about the paint that was used historically on some of these windows across the country? Is it different from paints that people might use today for their windows?
0: Yes, it definitely is. Paint evolution is as big a subject as glass or windows in their own right. So there's, there's definitely a big history in paint evolution. It isn't solely related to the paints because it's actually the material that the paint goes on to. So before we consider paints, it's important to think about the type of wood that was used in the construction of the windows. Because historically, the wood that would have been used for the sash windows or some of that would have been imported, Baltic pine, which was a very strong, dense timber, but actually the density of the window will affect how well the paint adheres to it and actually the porosity so how much water gets into oh, I see. it so it's all it's all it's a it's all quite complex in the sense that when you used to have historically paints would have been strengthened the durability of a paint was naturally strengthened by the craftsperson or the painter and decorator mixing in a quota of lead paint so lead whiting they used to put it in and that would have Really valuable properties for a lot of historic historic windows for many years. Anti microbial, antifungal properties. It would do some really clever things to help our our windows stay a bit brighter and a bit shinier for longer. But what's happened now, understandably, is we've under, since the sort of 1960s onwards, we started to understand issues with using lead paint. So lead has been used less frequently. So those innate benefits that were put into wood historically, they've kind of impregnated the wood. If you imagine they seep in. And that's, mm-hmm. that gave a protection that we don't have the opportunity. You can do it on license now. You can use lead paint, but clearly, as a responsible charity, what we're trying to do is ensure that we do things as responsibly and sustainably as possible. Historic England governed the use of lead paint for the historic environment. So that's how it works today in in England what we can do is y- you could consider for example if you had a really high level window so often some of our glazing comes from top lights or glazed lanterns on the top of a a big house can Chem- you know the houses have these rest park in bedfordshire has a glazed lantern which lights the principal hall in those situations the use of lead paint which can give extra durability endurance it would be something that you might consider to progress a license for But if you're having paint that's on a low ground floor or something that people are going to be rubbing up against or perhaps we need to rub down every now and again we wouldn't want to introduce those kind of health and safety risks so there are risks embedded in in doing it sounds quite simple painting and decorating window but there are layers of history and layers of decoration that need to be considered and safety implications in that as well
1: lost skills that's another issue isn't it because old buildings can be highly decorative so are there enough skilled craftspeople around to do this complex work on your 13,000 windows?
0: Ranging across the various types of windows we've explored today, there's a there's a wide spectrum of craft skills that, that are imbo- embodied in, in window repairs. Um, I'll just name a few. Just uh, the stained glass that, uh, that Stephen was mentioning earlier, so the quarries and the, the actual cames, the lead cames, there are lead makers and lead specialists that need to be involved. The glaziers and the glass blowers as well, the people that make the glass joiners bench joiners and who put together the windows and framing up windows and joiners are hugely skilled people intergenerational skills that have passed through generations Christian mentioned the um, advent of this ash window coming over from Paris where these skills came over they've been passed through generations but what we're starting to find now is that less people are joining the construction industry it's a, a national challenge it's it's been there for quite a few years now. So a lot of those skills aren't being passed on. And actually it's the way wood is even manufactured today is different. So we're using machinery. So we're maybe not selecting, we we don't have to be so picky about the types of wood we use, whereas a historic joiner would be very keen on selection of wood, making sure they understood innately how wood was used. And actually those skills haven't always passed down.
1: So, I mean, are there enough people to carry out the work?
0: We as a charity, we, we are working with lots of different craftspeople throughout the country and there are the Heritage Crafts Association and others nationally and internationally are promoting the intergenerational craft skills involved in windows conservation and wider architectural conservation. We have enough people, we at English Heritage, we plan our work in advance, but we are using the services of specialists the truth is, in the industry there aren't enough people and what we do need to do is encourage school, uh, school attendees and, or, and other people later in life to understand the value and the huge contribution that practical craft skills can bring to sustaining the significance and heritage that we, we care for at English Heritage.
1: So, how much money does English Heritage need to raise to carry out the work on the 13,000 windows at properties around the country?
0: We're hoping through this campaign to raise a sum of a million pounds towards the cost of ongo- the ongoing works that we're doing. It's not one million pounds and then we won't be doing anything, it's one million pounds towards that, and the money would actually be allocated on the basis of the greatest need. So some windows have more needs than others, and obviously it's a cyclical thing, we, we attend to them. We do hope, though, that we would do the work within two to three years of the close of this campaign, so we would be very grateful for any contributions how
1: long is the entire project going to last i mean uh, you're talking about having a million pounds and but um it might come in in sort of dribs and drabs so
0: yeah so what 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 we what we hope to do is as i said it's an ongoing maintenance task so windows maintenance is happening before it will happen after through this proposal though, through this initiative and this fundraising campaign, there's a huge focus and drive. And when I mentioned earlier about the skills training, what we want to do is we want to achieve more publicity. We want to get more people working on our sites and demonstrating to our visitors the type of work that we do through Conservation in Action to engage people in the story of architectural conservation.
1: That's an important part of the whole project and just generally looking after heritage and history, isn't it? So how important do you see windows as being part of the story that we tell at English heritage sites?
0: I think between us all, we we, we would certainly, uh, I think we're certainly all pure advocates for windows. We all love windows, but they tell a hugely significant story. They're emblems of craftsmanship, um, architectural design, tastes, trends status symbols. They, you know, Windows tell huge stories, it depends how deeply you want to look, but they clearly afford a view over history and so for that reason they're hugely significant. The other untold element of a, that we haven't touched upon here now is that the windows are the first line of defence for our collections that we care for as well through English heritage. So we've got amazing nas- internationally significant art collections and windows play a key role in sustaining the environmental conditions inside the buildings to preserve those collections.
1: With that in mind, for you, Nicola, do you have any particular favourite views from an English heritage property?
0: I work in the east of England and London, and I recall at Rest Park, there's a principal vista there from the main boardroom. And I sat there one day working and thinking how blessed I was to have the opportunity to look out at windows like this. But for me, I really do love the windows that aren't necessarily on the main visitor route, the interesting and quirky windows, the ones that perhaps they're not such visual statements of wealth of the owners, they're more practical. So our stable blocks have slightly simpler windows often and windows, for example, in the, in the stables, we have windows that drop inwardly and do different things. So I, I just like the variety. I don't think I could pick one, they're all rather amazing. And each one has a separate story and layers through history.
1: Absolutely. And for someone passing by, it's either you look in or if you're inside, you're looking out onto perhaps a beautiful view. Christian, you're familiar with London, obviously, because uh, you're a properties curator for the capital. Do you have any particular favourite views out of windows?
3: Yes, I certainly do. It must be the view from Robert Adams' antechamber at Kenwood. The view is over the grounds, which sweep down towards the lake, where there is a white-painted classical sham bridge, surrounded by trees, and the city of London in the distance. I'd highly encourage people to go and see it for themselves. It must be one of the best views in London.
1: Yes, Kenwood is really pretty. I definitely recommend going there. We've been there on the podcast as well. Stephen, um, lastly, do you have a favourite view from a window?
2: There are. Great many to choose from Charles but I think for me it's the window behind the throne position in the Great Hall at Dover Castle that Henry II we like to think looked down on when preparing to welcome a great visitor like the Count of Flanders there in about 1188 and a place like that where you know someone like King Henry stood reverberates with with historic associations.
1: You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll look at medieval medicine, magic, and superstition.
2: One of the best known hospitals in the
3: United Kingdom is St Bartholomew's Hospital in London, and that is a medieval foundation. It's a monastic hospital set up for the health care of poor Londoners.
1: Thanks for listening. See you next time.